Hi everybody, welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. It's James Rudd here, the Digital Media Editor at Heart. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Gurav Gulsin, who joins me from the University of British Columbia. And Gurav and co-authors have written an excellent review paper all about the benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors across the spectrum of different cardiovascular diseases. I hope you enjoy the show and many thanks again for leaving positive reviews on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us reach new audiences. Thanks again. Thanks for joining me today, Gaurav. Maybe we can start off by having you introduce yourself for the heart audience. Of course. Uh, my name is Gaurav Coulson. I'm currently working at uh, the University of British Columbia in Vancouver as an advanced cardiac imaging fellow, um, but I'm a trainee from the East Midland South Deanery in cardiology. And Gaurav, I wanted to get you on the podcast to discuss a review article that you've recently written, uh, which is all about SGLT2 inhibitors and their use uh, across the spectrum of cardiovascular disease. Um, maybe we can start off by you telling, certainly me as an uninitiated cardiologist, can you tell me a bit about this class of drugs? How do SGLT2 inhibitors work? Why were they originally developed? That kind of thing. Sodium glucose co-transporter 2 or SGLT2 inhibitors, they were actually first discovered in the 1800s. Uh, I think they were isolated from the bark of uh, apple trees. Um, and in the years that followed, they were found in predominantly animal studies to cause glycosuria, um, and by this means lowering of blood glucose levels. And, and that's how they work. Um, they prevent the reabsorption of glucose in the proximal convoluted tubule of the nephron, which makes you pass glucose out in your urine and thereby lower your blood glucose levels. And by doing so, they also cause modest reductions in body weight through a, a slight diuretic effect and reduction of blood pressure. But in the first instance, they were really developed um, to study the kidney because they inhibit kidney glucose transport. And so as much as it pains me to admit it, uh, the drugs probably uh, were owned initially by our nephrology colleagues and weren't developed specifically as diabetes drugs. So they were used originally or the aim was to use them in patients with type 2 diabetes, type 1 diabetes? Well, again, it was kind of a secondary effect where uh, they, they learned that by promoting urinary glucose excretion, they could lower uh, fasting plasma glucose and postprandial glucose levels. So although they were subsequently developed as diabetes drugs, we first used them back in the 18 and early 1900s to study renal physiology. But yes, uh, their predominant uh, benefit was on lowering blood sugar levels. And can you tell us a little bit about those early trials in patients with type 2 diabetes that suggested there might be some other benefits, so some cardiovascular benefits to, the, to using these drugs? When SGLT2 inhibitors first really entered the limelight and caught the attention of cardiologists it was after the publication of a study called the EMPA-REG outcome trial in 2015. And they really became famous because they showed their potential to solve a major problem in the management of diabetes which is lowering the risk of heart failure development. People with type two diabetes are two to two and a half times more likely to develop heart failure, which is independent of traditional risk factors like coronary artery disease and hypertension. But historical randomized trials were never able to show that strictly managing diabetes mitigated the risk of high heart failure development. In fact, some diabetes drugs uh, such as rosiglitazone actually increased heart failure risk because of that, in 2008, the US Food and Drug Administration mandated that all diabetes medications have to undergo rigorous cardiovascular outcome trials to demonstrate their safety. 
and that cued the EMPA-REG outcome trial. So this was a multi-center international placebo-controlled RCT of empagliflozin in people with type 2 diabetes who were at high risk of cardiovascular disease. The study had over 7,000 patients who were followed up for three years, and there were no significant differences in the rates of MI or stroke um, after follow-up. But in the empagliflozin group, there were significantly lower rates of CV death, hospitalization for heart failure and death from any cause. So suddenly we had a drug that appeared to lower the risk of heart failure development in type two diabetes. Since Empereg outcome, we've had a host of other SGLT2 inhibitor cardiovascular outcome trials, and they've consistently found this strong signal for reducing heart failure hospitalizations and CV mortality by around about 30%. And can you tell us about the data specifically in trials that have looked at patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. I know in, in your comprehensive review, you talk about two large studies. Uh, and again, the other interesting point is that there were benefits even in patients without diabetes. What about those trials specifically in pa patients with HEFREF? Well, of course, after learning about the potential for a new class of heart failure drugs, the best clinical trialists in the world, that, that's cardiologists, got in on the action. And in 2019 and 2020, we saw the DAPA-HF and EMPA-reduced trials published. Now, these were both two large randomized trials looking at whether the SGLT2 inhibitors dapagliflozin and empagliflozin could be used to treat patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. Patients in both studies had a mean uh, left ventricular ejection fraction of around 30%. And a key component of both these trials was that they included both people with and without diabetes. And they both found that the addition of SGLT2 inhibitor therapy to good contemporary background heart failure treatments was associated with around about a 25% relative risk reduction in the composite outcome of cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization over a one and a half year follow-up duration. And this effect was consistent regardless of whether the patients had diabetes, signaling that these medications have major utility beyond just lowering blood sugar levels. And what about patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction? Um, are there any useful data out there in that group of patients specifically or anything we can extrapolate from other trials? Well, we're all aware of the challenges that we face as cardiologists uh, in the space of HEFPEF, um, as well as the strong association of HEFPEF with obesity and diabetes. The first signal that SGLT2 inhibitors may improve clinical outcomes in patients with HEFPEF came from a study called the Soloist WHF trial, which was published earlier this year. In this study, uh, the investigators looked at sotagliflozin, which is an inhibitor of both SGLT2 and SGLT1 in the gut, but only in patients with diabetes who had a recent episode of heart failure decompensation. Importantly, around a fifth of the patients in this trial uh, who were randomized had heart failure with preserved ejection fraction with an EF of greater than 50%. Now, sadly, the trial ended early because of loss of funding from the sponsor, but there was a very strong signal there uh, with the primary composite outcome of cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization being lower in the drug versus placebo group over just a short-term uh, period of follow-up of nine months. And this treatment effect was actually more marked in those patients with an ejection fraction of uh, greater than 50%, giving us this exciting uh, potential efficacy in HEFPEF. 
But even more exciting uh, is that the results of the Emperor Preserve trial were just announced at the European Society of Cardiology's annual Congress. Now, this was another large multi-centre international uh, RCT of empagliflozin in around 6,000 patients with symptomatic HEFPEF, defined uh, as having heart failure with an ejection fraction of greater than 40%. And they included people with or without diabetes. Over a two-year follow-up period, the trial found a 21% relative risk reduction in the primary outcome, which was a composite of CV death and heart failure hospitalization, all predominantly driven by lower heart failure hospitalizations in the empagliflozin arm. So it looks like we've seen a major breakthrough in the treatment of HEFPEF, which has historically been such a challenging condition to tackle. And I guess we'll have to see what happens as the guideline writers and societies begin to digest that study. Absolutely, as you say. It was only released uh, one or two days ago uh, at the time of recording this at the end of August uh, 2021. Uh, Moving away from heart failure, Gaurav, some other indications that um, we could potentially use these SGLT2 inhibitor drugs. What about using them in patients with uh, coronary artery disease but without heart failure? Are there any trial data to guide us on that? I think if we go back to the original cardiovascular outcome trials, which were Empereg Outcome, Canvas, uh, Declare, Timmy 58, What we see from those studies is that a considerable proportion of those patients had coronary artery disease, but without heart failure. And we still saw a benefit of SGLT2 inhibitors. So in Empereg outcome, uh, for example, around about 75% of patients included in that trial had a history of atherosclerotic coronary artery disease. 50% of patients had had a previous MI. And we still saw an approximately 25 to 30% relative risk reduction in heart failure events in that kind of secondary prevention uh, cohort who did not have heart failure. Only 10% of patients in that trial actually had heart failure. So there's certainly a signal for preventing the development of heart failure in people with coronary artery disease. But of course, those patients in Empereg outcome and the other cardiovascular outcome trials all had type 2 diabetes. So we don't know whether or not the same signal that we're seeing in our heart failure trials, where they included people with and without diabetes, uh, still holds true in a a secondary prevention space uh, for heart failure in people with coronary artery disease. And and I expect that those trials will be coming. And you also mentioned in your review article um, the potential for using this medication for patients with or at risk of atrial fibrillation. Could you maybe talk a bit more about that? Well, we know that type 2 diabetes uh, is associated with an increased risk for the development of atrial fibrillation. And if you have diabetes and you subsequently develop AF, uh, those patients have worse symptoms, they have poorer quality of life, and they have poorer outcomes as well with an increased risk of death and heart failure hospitalization. I don't think that there's a direct effect uh, where SGLT2 inhibitors can modulate uh, atrial fibrillation burden and associated uh, symptoms and and outcomes. However, this class of medications, they lower body weight, they lower blood pressure, and they lower HbA1c, all of which are essentially um, a polypill way of reducing risk factors associated with a higher atrial fibrillation burden. If we look at meta-analysis data of over, well, close to 40,000 patients, uh, SGLT2 inhibitor use was associated with a lower incidence of new onset and recurrent atrial fibrillation, even when adjustment for lots of confounding variables. 
So we posit that the multifactorial AF risk reduction conferred by SGLT2 inhibitors may be responsible for reducing the burden of atrial fibrillation associated uh, with type 2 diabetes. But I don't think I can go so far as to say that there's a direct effect there. And what about the theoretical benefits that you mention uh, for patients with valvular heart disease? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Are they um, are the trials already completed or is ongoing work in that area? Because it seems to me quite a stretch towards valve disease from a, a drug developed to treat type 2 diabetes. Can you help me fill in the blanks there? So the first uh, answer to your question is that at the moment, no studies have explored the potential benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors in patients with valvular heart disease. However, several mechanistic studies have emerged trying to understand how SGLT2 inhibitors possibly have such beneficial impact on, on, on the heart. And in those, what we seem to have consistently seen using imaging is that SGLT2 inhibitors promote reverse LV remodeling. So the dilated heart becomes less dilated. Uh, and there may therefore be a role for SGLT2 inhibitors in patients with, for example, functional mitral regurgitation by uh, reducing the extent of LV dilatation. At the moment, there's no trial data, but uh, I believe that there are studies underway evaluating the efficacy and benefit of SGLT2 inhibitors, particularly in patients with functional MR, and we may see those come out in the future. And can we explore a little bit more about these drugs and how they're used in patients with chronic kidney disease? Alongside their cardioprotective effects, the early cardiovascular outcome data indicated that SGLT2 inhibitors, as well as preventing heart failure events, also conferred renal protection. So we saw that in the early trials, uh, such as CANVAS-R, uh, and following that uh, sub-analysis of MPREG outcome, where there seemed to be an association with SGLT2 inhibitor use and uh, attenuating the progression of chronic kidney disease. So following on from that, uh, a study called the Credence study was performed in patients with type 2 diabetes and albuminuric chronic kidney disease. And they found that patients randomized to canagliflozin, uh, 100 milligrams daily versus placebo, uh, performed much better with respect to um, the composite of end-stage kidney disease development, doubling of serum creatinine levels or death from renal or cardiovascular causes. Following on from that, and very similar uh, in spirit to the DAPA-HF and Emperor the reduced trials, what we did as a community is we studied the effects of SGLT2 inhibitors in patients with chronic kidney disease with or without diabetes across a spectrum of EGFR levels. And the first major trial to do this was called the DAPA-CKD study, which randomized over 4,000 patients with chronic kidney disease uh, from a spectrum of EGFRs down to as low as 25 um, to 45 to 60 in their categories um, to receive dapagliflozin 10 milligrams or, or placebo. And these included patients with or without diabetes. And similar to the heart failure trials, what they found is that there was a reduction in the primary composite outcome of progression of uh, chronic kidney disease uh, events, such as decline in EGFR, development of end-stage kidney disease or, or renal death, um, with almost a 40% relative risk reduction compared to placebo. So as well as being um, drugs that can prevent heart failure development, uh, they also seem to be very powerful at uh, preventing uh, and attenuating the progression of chronic kidney disease. They really are fascinating drugs, aren't they? Um, is there anything we should know about um, side effects, contraindications, or the certain patient groups that shouldn't receive these drugs, Gaurav? 
Absolutely. I think when any new class of medication emerges, we always worry about using these drugs inappropriately and causing harm. And so in, in our review article, I think there's, there's a box to the right of figure two, which really highlights patient groups where we absolutely should not be using SGLT2 inhibitors at the moment, uh, certainly as cardiologists. So I would point to patients with type 1 diabetes, people who have a past history of ketoacidosis, because there is an association between SGLT2 inhibitor use and euglycemic ketoacidosis. We really shouldn't initiate these drugs in patients with acute medical illness or who are undergoing surgery um, or who have very poorly controlled diabetes um, and those on low carbohydrate diets, uh, such as uh, ketotic diets, uh, where the risks associated with these drugs may be greater. And then in patients who have recurrent genitourinary infections, um, because again, there is a, a small added risk of developing recurrent uh, urogenital infections with SGLT2 use. And are they hard uh, drugs for simple cardiologists to start and to monitor? Is there a sort of dose escalation phase that patients have to go through and lots of monitoring blood tests or are they fairly straightforward? I think really that's the beauty of SGLT2 inhibitors. Uh, as cardiologists, uh, we often worry about up titration of medications. Certainly we're very used to doing that with uh, drugs like ACE inhibitors and, and beta blockers. But SGLT2 inhibitors are very, very straightforward to uh, use prescribe and then monitor. So if we take um, the two drugs with, with the largest data behind them, which is uh, dapagliflozin and empagliflozin, dapagliflozin is a single dose of 10 milligrams once a day. That's it. Uh, it's, a, it's an oral tablet. It's not an injectable. And similarly, empagliflozin also has a starting dose of 10 milligrams once a day. So it's one tablet once a day. Empagliflozin has a second higher dose of 25 milligrams once a day. But the benefits observed with incremental doses of empagliflozin isn't all that great. So I think you'd be very safe and comfortable just starting either of those two medications at 10 milligrams once a day. Um, there is an anticipated decline in EGFR of about 10 to 15% over the first four to six weeks of initiating these medications. So we suggest that you check the patient's EGFR six weeks after initiating uh, either of these study drugs. But we should be clear that these medications are renal protective. So unless there's a significant greater than 10 or 15% decline in EGFR, they can be continued very safely. And in terms of other monitoring after after that first six week period, anything special required? Not especially. Uh, symptoms with patients, making sure that they are tolerating, of course, the medications. They're not developing um, urogenital infections. I think is advisable. Um, giving them some advice on sick day rules, uh, which mm. we provide in our document. Uh, if patients are not able to eat or drink, uh, or have a vomiting or diarrheal illness, then it is um, advice to to cease taking the medications until they recover. Um, generally speaking, SGLT2 inhibitors don't cause hypoglycemia okay. by way of their mechanism of action because, uh, of course, what they do is they prevent reabsorption of glucose, which has already been filtered from the kidney. Uh, so they don't, on their own, generally cause hypoglycemia. So monitoring of blood glucose levels is not mandatory in patients taking SGLT2 inhibitors with or without diabetes. The only caveat to that is in combination with multiple diabetes medications, there is a small added risk of developing hypos. And in that case, uh, I would suggest that liaising with a diabetes specialist nurse or clinician um, to 
potentially reduce the dose of their other diabetes medications or more closely monitor for hypos may be necessary. But in the vast majority of patients, that's not essential. And just before we wrap up, Gaurav, can you give us some idea as to where these drugs currently fit into the the guidelines? Um, Obviously, you just mentioned a very late breaking study a couple of days ago. So the guidelines are a moving target as always. And these are fairly new drugs. But do they feature in any of the guidelines at present? Or is this something we're expecting over the next few months? They absolutely do. So already in uh, the International uh, American Diabetes Association, uh, European Association uh, for the Study of Diabetes, uh, and the European Society of Cardiology Guidelines, uh, SGLT2 inhibitors have been uh, recommended as uh, first line in ESC and uh, in addition to metformin in, in the diabetes guidelines for the treatment of hyperglycemia in people with type 2 diabetes. So they're very much established uh, drugs for the treatment of and management of type 2 diabetes. But again, uh, this weekend, uh, after the ESC Congress, uh, which released their new heart failure guidelines, we've now seen quite rightly that SGLT2 inhibitors have a class 1A indication for uh, management of symptomatic heart failure with reduced ejection fraction alongside ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, and mineral voltoid receptor antagonists. So we now have this fourth pillar of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction management uh, that is firmly advocated and indicated by the European Society of Cardiology, which gives us more confidence in in using them, I hope. Perfect. Are there any ongoing trials that you're aware of or questions that remain unanswered with this group of medications as far as cardiovascular applications goes? Yes, for sure. I think that the major question really still remains is why do these drugs assert such heterogeneous mechanism of benefit on the cardiovascular and renal system? And multiple mechanistic trials uh, are underway, uh, predominantly in the space of uh, advanced cardiac imaging. We've already seen uh, from smaller studies that they appear to improve diastolic function. Uh, They may improve uh, cardiac energy utilization. They may improve microvascular function, and they certainly do help with uh, remodeling of the left ventricle. But in the clinical space, uh, I think there are some some unanswered questions that I hope will be addressed in the near future. Um, The two that come to mind for me is post-myocardial infarction. So uh, we have uh, an array of medications, as you know, that we use and initiate in patients following an MI. Will we be able to add SGLT2 inhibitors to that mix? Uh, There's there's two trials underway evaluating that. Uh, And then in the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease space, uh, I often wonder now, uh, as we have used statins in the prevention of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, are SGLT2 inhibitors going to be the heart failure preventative drugs that we start to use? And then lastly, when after an acute admission with heart failure, is it safe to initiate SGLT2 inhibitors? Can you start them on the index hospitalization? There are some data to show that once the patient is stable, that's safe to do. Or do you have to wait a few weeks once the patient's well uh, and in an outpatient setting? So there are some questions still to be answered, but we're on the way. Fantastic. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time and taking part in the podcast today. It's been a real pleasure to catch up with you. And I will make the article free if it's not already free on the Heart website for a few weeks so everybody can uh, go ahead and download it and read it. 